0: Hello from the newsroom of the Financial Times in London. I'm Suzanne Blumson and this is News in Focus, where we offer our insights into the global news stories that matter. How will the struggle for power between China and the US play out? And how will it determine the future world order? Fred Studerman puts this question to China expert Rana Mitter, who has reviewed a series of books looking at the issue from different perspectives.
1: Rana, thanks for coming in. You looked at a number of books for us in a book's essay about China and the West. And what struck me right from the get-go was that you talked about this interaction between these great powers, China and the West, the US, as being almost unique in its complexity. And I thought, why is that? Why is this more complicated than
2: other great power interactions that we've witnessed over the centuries Fred, I think it is different. And the reason, fundamentally, is that we've never seen an engagement between two different types of regime that are so closely intertwined but so different in terms of their values. So if you think back to the Cold War, we had at that time basically two political and economic systems which were fiercely opposed to each other, but they didn't actually connect all that much. Of course, we were all terrified of the threat of nuclear war, but the Soviet Union's economy was not a major factor for the West and vice versa. That, of course, is not remotely true for the People's Republic of China. It is, of course, the second biggest economy in the world. It is now also a primary economic actor in you know, pretty much every single continent of the the world. And the United States, of course, and China have been entwined in terms of finance for more than 20 years, more like 30, really. So the fact that we now have a rising China, which from the point of view of many liberals in the West, but elsewhere, has a variety of values, particularly, of course, an authoritarian type of government that is very different from what a liberal government would put forward. But it's not a place that we can simply close off or ignore. That provides a dilemma that we're still right in the middle of solving on both sides. And one of the aspects of that, I think I'm right in saying you say there's a choice there.
1: Do we engage more with China? And we're seeing this stuff that's happening in the world of technology, Huawei, and whether it should be allowed to be part of the 5G project. Or do we push back and one comes with a security risk?
2: and the other one comes a potentially a financial economic risk. That's the dilemma, but let me give you a specific example. Let's take Huawei, which, of course, has become this company that in the UK, where we're sitting now, nobody had heard of, probably, well, not nobody, but very few people a year ago, and now, of course, is a headline every single morning on the news, usually pronounced in a variety of rather creative yeah, ways. Sure Hawaii... I've got it wrong as ha- well. No, 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 you've <laughs> got it absolutely right. I've heard at least one prominent politician who refers to it as Hawaii, which is not quite the same <laughs> yeah. thing. I think that's not so much of an issue. So 10, 20 years ago... We might have said that the biggest threat from the Chinese technology sector was that they were basically borrowing without permission, as the polite way to put it, Intellectual property from the Western world, from the US, from Britain, from Europe, Chinese were basically taking technology that they hadn't paid for and were putting it into their machines and it had to be stopped. That is no longer the main problem. It does exist. But the wider problem is that actually China is now producing its indigenous technology to a very, very high standard. So the reason that the United Kingdom, for instance, is having a debate about whether or not they put Huawei equipment in the 5G network is nothing to do with intellectual property theft. It's the fact that the cheapest highest quality, most effective broadband network you can have is made by Huawei. And if you don't have that, then you're basically saying that you have to give an alternative company the rights to put in the network that may actually not be at the moment of as high quality. So there's a genuine balance between quality and, as you say, the question of whether there's a security risk or not. That's a new dilemma, not just for the UK, but for the entire liberal world.
1: Fascinating. I want to come on to the books now because we get a perspective from China. Tell us a bit more about a view from Beijing in terms of how these relationships are going to develop, what China sees as its role, and whether they have different conceptions of types of political systems.
2: One of the books I've reviewed in this particular China Books essay is the book Leadership and the Great Powers by Yen Shuetong. Professor Yen is a very senior scholar in China. He's at Tsinghua University, one of the top institutions in that country. And he's become known, I'd say, over the last 20 years or more in that particular field as probably one of the three or four best-known, most respected analysts of China's international relations. Now, in international relations terms, without getting too technical, he's what's known as a realist. It's the accusation that's sometimes put at Henry Kissinger, although Henry Kissinger always pushes back and says that he's an idealist in realist's clothing, or worse to that effect. In other words, what... Professor Yen believes, is that power is the thing that actually makes a difference. So that's the position he's always had. That's why this book is so interesting, not just about him about China, because it makes actually, in some ways, a rather different case, a case that if China is going to take fullest advantage of its rise in the world, the fact that it is now the second biggest economy in the world and may, by GDP, be the biggest one within 10 years, the fact that it is this huge international actor, then it has to change the way that it looks at the world, not just talking about power relationships, but also about what you might call the human relations, the narrative that surrounds that. And Professor Yen is suggesting that it will be time, maybe not yet, but quite soon for For what he calls a more humane, that's the word he used, humane view of how China should relate to the rest of the world. Now, that is, in a sense, part of a process that we've also seen earlier with the most recent hegemon in world politics, the United States, which of course became a power that had more battleships and more fighter planes than anyone else, particularly during World War II, but really seduced the world through what's become known as soft power, in other words, having a story to tell the world, I read Professor Yen's book as saying that China has got the military, it's got the realist power, now it has to find the story. And does he believe that Chinese leadership in its current
1: incarnation, do they buy that?
2: Well, this is one of the things that you have to read quite carefully in the book. It's not, I would say, a book to necessarily put next to a thriller at an airport. You know, It does take a bit of time, but I'd say get a glass of wine, give it a good going over because it's well worth it. Professor Yen doesn't at any point in the book talk about the current leadership. So Xi Jinping, the current president of China, is not mentioned. But Donald Trump is. Donald Trump is, along with a few other names. So the United States certainly comes into the line of fire, you might say. But the wider question that he asks is one that is very relevant to China, which is, is the current system that China's operating, which, you know, as we know, is one that has been economically very, very effective in terms of growth rates, in terms of creating a kind of middle class that's now obviously very, very powerful in China, and creating a sort of prosperous lifestyle that many consumers in China very much enjoy, but also really closing down political discourse is that going to be the way in which China can get to the next stage? And the implication, it's an implication, not a statement, but it is an implication, is that maybe China's going to have to go beyond that. If one looks at the conclusions that he comes to, and again, this is very interesting because it is so much a view from Beijing, from a thinker who is well-respected both in the West and China in that field, is that, There's not going to be a war. This is not a story about a confrontation between China and America on the military front. But there is going to be a sort of battle for ideas and for dominance, perhaps largely economic, in the Asia-Pacific region. He does say very firmly that the Asia-Pacific region is where you're going to have to look if you want to see what comes next for world politics. It's moving away from Europe, moving away from North America. The Pacific for yen is where it's at. Right, which is also the subject of one of the other books that you looked up,
1: Ezra Vogel's book, China and Japan, which comes to some interesting conclusions,
2: I think it's fair to say. It makes some interesting observations. It absolutely does. Ezra Vogel is a scholar but also a diplomatic figure who has actually sort of seen the rise and change in America's relationship with Asia over the decades. He served in the Clinton administration as assistant secretary of state, and he became very famous in the 70s, as early as that, with a book called Japan as number one, which was on every business leader's bookshelf, as well as, of course, many scholars. But he's always been a speaker of both Chinese and Japanese. And this book is about China and Japan, their shared history, which he points out actually is not always as confrontational as it sometimes appears. We tend to think, of course, of the Second World War, when the two countries did have a massive conflict, of course. But he also points out that, for instance, if you look at statistics in the last few years, a few years ago, when tensions were pretty high between the two countries, something like a million, million and a half Chinese visited Japan, perhaps not that many. That number last year, 2018, is more like eight million. So if you look below some of the surface rhetoric, he's saying, actually, there is a more cooperative story about economics, about tourism, about cultural values that are shared, that maybe means the countries aren't as far apart as they might be. And this is, I think, part of the wider Vogel viewpoint because he comes from that generation of Americans who saw it as part of their duty, I think, in the post-World War II era to try and create a sort of agreed, shared set of values and a sort of stable community in East Asia. America, of course, encouraged that in Europe very successfully, European Union, NATO and so forth. It's never quite worked out in the same way in Asia, but that hasn't stopped a lot of those people actually, I think, trying over and over again to create that similar sort of stability.
1: Fogel as you said, he mentioned former administration official, but other American voices take a sort of more, I would guess, an old money one to say hawkish view. And you picked up on one, someone I believe you actually at one point taught, Jonathan Ward, who's written a book, China's Vision of Victory, which sounds almost alarmist or is very concerned and feels that America needs to be
2: much more assertive in its response. That's right. Yes. Now, Jonathan Ward, I taught history when he was at Oxford, where I teach. But this book is very much about current affairs. And it's very much about policy, not about history as such. And yes, I think it's fair to say that the argument he puts forward in the book is one that says that China is use the phrase hawkish, I'll say clear and present danger. That's probably the phrase that comes to my mind when reading it. Now, I should say that the book is one that has a great deal of information in it. It's got a lot about military power and how China's building up its navy in particular. It's got a lot about economic power and also, of course, a lot about values. And the argument there essentially is that the United States whether it wants to or not, is going to have to deal with the fact that China is there to challenge the United States. So in a sense, that's a different story from the Yen Xiu story, where he's basically saying, look, the Americans and the Chinese are both going to be in the Pacific, but they're going to have to engage with each other. Ward's story is, well, maybe it's time for America to actually set down the red lines, if you can set down a red line in the Pacific Ocean, and actually say, thus far, and no further. So between them, those books actually point out in some ways where the difference of view comes in terms of what's going to happen, say, in the next decade in that Asia-Pacific region.
1: You've mentioned around all the books the sort of sense that there are tensions, there is a competition of ideas, but that the authors don't think we're heading towards some military confrontation and that things will be settled through dialogue, etc. Do you share that view? I
2: think you can see a generational difference in these books. It's worth, as I say in the essay, it's worth reading them in tandem because they all say something slightly different and they make up part of the picture. For Yen xiu Tong speaking from Beijing, but, you know, with, I think, a quite measured frame of mind, the argument is about two powers that have to live with each other and which have the potential to be confrontational but not necessarily in a military sense, maybe more in the economic sense. I think it's fair to say that Ezra Vogel's book is talking about the areas where you can find agreement rather than disagreement between the actors. And that, in a sense, reflects his long decades of experience in the region. Jonathan Ward is of a different generation. He's in his 30s. He's living right there in the policy world of Washington DC right now. And the world that he sees is a much more confrontational one, one in which America and China have different goals, different values, different viewpoints, and that maybe, just maybe, those can't be contained together. Now, We're going to have to see what happens to work out in, say, the trade war between China and the US, whether that actually could reach something more like a confrontation. But reading all three books makes you realise that actually all of these viewpoints exist simultaneously and part of the existential struggle almost is about which one of them is going to prevail. Rana Mitter, thank you very much. Thank you Fred.
0: That was Fred Studerman, FT Books Editor, talking to Rana Mitter, Director of the Oxford University China Centre. Thanks for listening, and if you are interested in events in China and Asia-Pacific, look out for our latest episode of World Weekly, where we talk about the protests in Hong Kong. Don't forget, if you missed our recent episodes on the Iran-US standoff in the Gulf, China's threat to use rare earths as a trade weapon, or the fall of Britain's answer to Warren Buffett, You can find them on all the usual podcast platforms. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast.